0: we're in the middle of this series of uh, lessons of, of studies that we've entitled the men of matthew and i personally i've been very much enjoying these these lessons and over the past uh, several weeks we've looked at herod and everything that that name means realizing that it's not just one person but uh evil family uh, we've talked about four fishermen anybody remember the four fishermen what somebody shout out their names Peter, Andrew, James, and John—they start. They were coming, but just slow there. And then we uh, last week we talked about the centurion who had just amazing, amazing faith and and uh, began to see things far before anyone would would be expected to see these things. But tonight, uh, what we're going to do tonight is actually as I put it together, I, the thought crossed my mind was that uh, this maybe this should have been the first study of this series, but. We're going to be talking about the author himself, Matthew, uh, who, by the way, in other places in Scripture, particularly with Luke, he's also known as Levi. So anytime you see Levi in the Gospels, it's the same man, Matthew and Levi. You can, in fact, you could call him Matthew Levi if you wanted to. And so we're going to uh, read in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to pick it up in verse 9 if you want to read along with me. This is what it says Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And that's what we're going to, we're going to be looking at Matthew tonight. And there's, uh, there, we, we we're going to talk about a few different things, but uh, I want to start by saying this. I once heard a saying, uh, uh, well, I was going to say this, I, if I were going to pick a title for this, I, I would probably name it your, your neighbor, friendly neighborhood IRS man. Uh, that would be the title of this study tonight. But I once heard a saying about, about the three great lies, three greatest lies in the world. You know what the, you, know what, you want to know what the three greatest lies in the world are? The first one is this. The check is in the mail. That's the first lie. The second lie uh, is an e- even greater one. It says, this is what it is. The second lie is, I'm a Pentecostal pastor, and I'm only going to take a few moments of your time. <laughs> That's a lie. That's a flat-out lie. And the third one is, I'm from the IRS, and I'm here to help you. Those are the three great lies. and. And uh, you know, when we study Matthew, who is again, he's also known as Levi, uh, the, the man who wrote this gospel that we're studying, we, we've, we've got to understand that he is a, a revenue agent, but he's a very unusual unusual revenue agent. And tonight what I want to do is I want to share with you something about the book itself. This is part of why I think maybe I should have done this first because we're going to look at a little bit of, at the book of Matthew and what that means, but we're going to look at that, we're going to. We're going to look at Matthew himself, and we're going to look at the uh, the occupation that he chose, and then finally we're going to pull it all together by looking at his call in order to make some sort of devotional application in our lives. Now Matthew, the book, Matthew is one of the four Gospels, three of which are called the Synoptic Gospels. Now the Synoptic Gospels are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not John. And, and synoptics, just so you know, it's just a big uh, sounding word, but it's just based on the word synopsis. So that is to say that they are a, a summary based on chronological concepts. In other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all just sort of follow the timeline of the events of Jesus' life. They, they pretty much agree in material. They're pretty much based on action and plot, where Jesus went, what Jesus did. But John's gospel is... Very, it's very, very different than that. Uh, it's much more visionary. It's based on the long discourses of Jesus. It's, it's less confined by time and action and plot, and it's much more about concepts and ideas. And the, the Gospel of John is, is honestly, it's exactly the kind of gospel you'd expect to be written by the man who gave us the book of Revelation. Uh, th- th- this is the guy who, his, just, his circuitry panel is just different. It just not, doesn't look like ours. And so, because, listen, if you wanted to write a story about somebody's life, you really begin the way Matthew did for Jesus. He said, this is the book of the gene- genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. John, however, begins with, in the beginning was the word. And you, you read that and you go, yeah, well, what's that all about? And, uh, and John is very, very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they're called the synoptic gospels because Basically, they're based on a synopsis of the life of Jesus. Now, now, Matthew and John, out of all the Gospels, think about this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Matthew and John are the only two apostles who wrote Gospel accounts. Mark, we know, he, it was written probably written by a young man named John Mark, and, and most likely what he wrote down was told to him directly by Peter. So Peter had a very strong hand in writing it, but he didn't himself write the, the gospel. And then Luke, we know, was written by the man named Luke. He was a physician and co worker of the Apostle Paul, and he also, you probably know, also wrote the book of Acts. The, the word gospel itself, it means good tidings or good news. It's actually the, the exact same phrase that is used by the angels when they spoke to the shepherds, as recorded in Luke chapter 10. This is what they said. They said, fear not, for behold, I bring you, what? Good news, or some translations, good tidings, same thing, of great joy that will be for all the people. In other words, the angel says, I'm bringing you the gospel. In essence, that's what he said. And and the English word gospel that we get is based on an, an old Anglo-Saxon phrase, which is, the phrase is God's spell. and And the word spell in the ancient Anglo-Saxon is is their word for word. So it's just God word is what it says. So, so that's what the, the, the kind of a little bit about the gospels and what that means. But Matthew, as the, as the apostle, Matthew the book is the only synoptic gospel written by an apostle. It's also the only synoptic gospel written by an eyewitness. It is thoroughly Jewish in style, content, emphases, and issues. Matthew was a Jew writing largely to Jews, writing largely about a Jewish event. It it is thoroughly Eastern in its style, content, message, and thought, uh, and with the issues with with which he is dealing. It is not a Western-style gospel. And by that, I don't mean, you know, with the guns, six guns shoot him up. I'm talking about Western civilization, Luke was because Luke was written largely for Greeks, so it has a much more Western civilization type feel. And Mark also has a Western feel because it was written largely has a Roman flavor to it. So when was Matthew written? Well, Matthew's gospel was probably written before AD 70. Now, I know if you Read modern scholars, there are some out there that will disagree with me on that, but I believe I have very good evidence for that. It's, it's a very simple observation. Matthew's Gospel uh, uh, has more accounts of Jesus talking about the destruction of the Temple than any other of the Gospels. We know that historically the Temple was destroyed in AD 70. If, if he had written it after that, based on the way Matthew wrote things... I believe that if he had written it after that, he, he would have said in the text, indeed, this prophecy was fulfilled when the temple was destroyed. Because that's what he did over and over again. He would say, this event happened. And he'd say, this was to fulfill the prophecy. And he would quote the scripture from the Old Testament. That was what he did over and over again. So if the temple had been destroyed when he wrote it, uh, he would very, it makes sense that he would say, this was fulfilled by, uh, by, by the Romans, you know, this this point in history. So he makes, but he, he makes no reference to it in the narrative of, of uh, he makes no reference to the destruction of the temple in the narrative. Therefore, I believe Matthew is actually one of the very earliest of the Christian writings, Therefore, let's sum it all up. We have this Jewish book written by a Jewish man for Jewish people. It's a synoptic account of the life of Jesus. We have a book written very early in the life of the church. We have a book written by an eyewitness. It's one of the four Gospels written by an apostle. So that just sort of sets the scene, a bit of an introduction. Now, Now let's look at the man. Who is Matthew? Who is Matthew? That's a good question. I'm going to tell you some things about him that you're going to say, why in the world would you say this? But you'll understand it more when we talk about his profession. Who is Matthew? Well, Matthew was a man who worshipped money. Matthew, before they're talking about before he met Jesus. He was the quintessential materialist. And you cannot understand the years in Matthew's life before his dramatic encounter with Jesus unless you understand the character and nature of the materialist. Let me give you that. The, the materialist begins with a dream. That dream may be thoroughly materialistic, but it is a dream nonetheless. The, you know, the luxury car, the, the, the bigger house, the, the, the massive mansion, success, fame, glory, what, whatever it is. But he, he begins with a dream out there somewhere. And at first for the materialist, money is a means to an end. However, the means corrupts his soul. The corruption of, the, uh, uh, of greed steals from him, then the joy of his own so that so that the death of delight in his dream waits for him when the dream is finally his. Well, let me give you the progression and give you a little more fully. He begins with a dream. I want a mansion. I want, a, I want two luxury cars. I want lots of expensive things. He wants all of that. That's the dream. Now, I'm not saying that that's a worthy dream. It's not a worthy dream, but it's a dream nonetheless, and that motivates him. And he begins on the path toward the dream, saying, that, the, the, saying to himself that money is the means to an end, a means to get the dream. And he begins to pursue money in order to have the dream. However, as he begins to accumulate the means toward his dream, he eventually decides that the means is worthy of his adoration. He begins to worship the means to his dream. So it begins to soak into him, corrupting his spirit. The, the destructive power of greed begins to take hold of him so that by the time he reaches his dream, he, he, he arrives at that place where he has the luxury cars, he has the mansion, he has the power, he has all the wealth that he wanted, but, but now all of the joy has gone out of it because he has become hardened, tough, cynical, cruel, and unsympathetic. Unsympathetic. His attitude toward other people's suffering is, well, that's just tough. You, I made it, you make it. He sees everything through the veil of materialism that has so absorbed his life. This is the downward cycle of thinking that, that, that we can use the means as an end, to, to an end. And we, we, you know, when we get in that place, we begin to say, we say things like this as we're pursuing that dream. The materialist says, well, once I get the mansion, you know, once, once I get the luxury car, once I have all the things I want, then i'll become more generous then i'll give more away but i'm here to tell you it's just not true it's just it will never happen the fact is if you're not generous while you're building wealth you won't be generous when you have wealth because it's not something that you just switch on what happens is that the greed that i use as a means to an end so corrupts my soul and so 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 sucks into my soaks into my being that when I when I get to the big dream, the the pie in the sky, by and by, so to speak, then it holds no delight for me. Now, now I want to make it clear. I'm talking simply. I'm not. Uh, I'm not talking simply about being wealthy, because there is a big, big difference between wealth and materialism. Um, but that's a teaching for another time. Let, let me just. How many of you know people or know of people who have doggedly, determinedly, ferociously pursued money all their lives and they come to an advanced place in their life, both in age and in wealth, where they have a great deal of money, but the only thing that they want is more money. You ever known anyone like that? One young man was talking about his father and he said, my father is phenomenally wealthy. Phenomenally wealthy. He has a great deal of money but he has no delight in it. He has no joy in it. He won't do anything. He won't go anywhere. He is absorbed with the fascination of getting more money. He said, where would we put any more money? What would we do with any more money? What would we possibly die uh, buy? And yet, my father is absolutely obsessed with it. Now, the materialist, listen to this. This may seem counterintuitive, but the materialist does not have to be wealthy. You can be a poor materialist just as easily as you can be a rich materialist. See, what we think is that a man has to be wealthy to be a materialist, but... But, the, but materialism says that what I can see, touch, taste, feel, and smell, that's what's important. The, the material is what is significant. And the spiritual, the, the unseen, you, things like uh, virtues like love and relationships and God, those things, they don't matter. What's really important is the physical. That's the materialistic mindset. And you know what? There are people who have nothing. They, they have nothing. They're dirt poor, and they're as materialistic as the most corrupt billionaire in the world. They lust for money that they don't have. What's the difference between lusting for money that you don't have when you're poor and lusting for more money when you're rich? In both cases, they're lusting for money. The materialist may be dead broke, or he may be filthy rich, he, but he's, what he does is he says... What is really important, what is the focus of my life is wealth, it's money, it's getting things. The focus of my life is on, on that which is material. And I'm going I'm to tell you something, that is it is maybe a shock to some of you, so hold on to your hat. Are, are you ready? Uh, I started to say I blow your socks off, so I hope you wore tight-fitting socks tonight. But, but there is such a thing. As the, in, this, in the corrupted apostate Western church, there is such a thing as the quote-unquote Christian materialist. The Christian materialist says that the goal that I want is success. What I really want is money, health, wealth, all those things. That's my goal out there. That's what I want out of life. And, and I will use Christianity to get what I want. So that Christianity becomes a means to the end. He he, he actually, that person can actually exploit ministry, church, people, relationships, and preaching. We've seen this. You've seen, I know you know of people that have preached just for the goal of trying to get people to send them money. That's a Christian materialist. I mean, and I use the word Christian in in parentheses. This is nothing new. Paul said, in essence, he said, I know people who make merchandise of the gospel. Peter, he warned ministers who serve the flock of God selflessly. He said, oh, you need to serve selfishly, selflessly, but he, he says to us to guard against the temptation to, to do it for selfish gain. In other words, that which ought to be the end, they make the means. The end should be having a relationship with Jesus. It should be, it should be this process that we go through of learning and growing in Christ, but they turn that into a means to get to their own end. And that is crass materialism. This is so corrupting, it is so hardening that, that it turns people into hard, unsympathetic, cynical, uncaring compromisers. They will do anything, go anywhere, and compromise in any way. There is no law. There is no grace. There is no truth. They gradually lose all sense of virtue, all sense of perspective, all sense of truth. And they will gradually fall under a cloud of deceit because of this corrupting power of greed and materialism. This corrupting power of greed and materialism is so intrusive. It is so pervasive. It reaches into every part of life, body, mind, and soul spirit, mind, soul, and and the tentacles of it are so subtle that a man under the power of materialism and greed will eventually believe his own lie. They will actually fall into the worst kind of deceit. See, the worst kind of deceit is not when I lie to you. It's not even when I lie to God. The worst kind of deceit is when I lie to myself and believe it. Greed and materialism materialism would get you to that place quicker than just about anything else. It is an absorbing fascination and obsession. And I'm saying all that to say, such was Matthew. That's who he was. You say, why? I say that because he was a tax collector. So we need to understand what a tax collector is to understand why I would say that about Matthew, about all these things. A, a tax collector in the day in which the Gospel of Matthew was written was not just some guy who gets a job with the Internal Revenue Service, who is a perfectly respectable, intelligent, spirit-filled Christian who just happens to have a, a filthy, rotten, nasty job. No, I'm just kidding. I to make sure you're still awake. Um, seriously, though, in... Though an internal revenue agent today may be a perfectly decent and respectable person, may be a spirit-filled Christian, however, it was not possible to be a decent, respectable person while working as a revenue agent of the Roman Empire. It's not possible. Now, we might think it was theoretically possible, but it wasn't because the system was corrupt, And the system corrupted the men. And because the men involved were corrupt, the men continued to corrupt the system. It was a constantly downwardly moving cycle cycle where the the evil exacerbated the wickedness of the system. And then the system uh, 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 constantly aggravated the evil in the men. Each became worse because of the other. And here's what the system was. This is why the system itself was so corrupt. The Roman Empire found collaborators in each of their occupied territories. You know, so you you can list some of the territories. Thracia, Elysia, Gaul, Palestine, doesn't matter where it is. But they would find these collaborators in each of their territories, wherever they occupied that territory or that nation. And they would say to those people, you're going to be our revenue agents. All we want from you is the money. That's all we want. If you get the money to us, that's all we care about. Now, how much money you keep for yourself is of no concern to us. How you get it is meaningless to us. However, we want the money. If you don't send the money, we're coming for you. If you do send the money, anything else you do is up to you. Now, a person might hear that and say, "Well." All right, well, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to be proper in this. I'm going to do it the right way. I'm only going to charge what is correct, and then I'll send that to Rome and nothing else. But the problem with that is Rome did not pay these people at all. Rome expected them to operate by extortion, corruption, stealing, and every other kind of thing. And these people, as a result, were thoroughly and totally despised. They, they were collaborators. They were the Jews stealing from the Jew in order to fund this occupying army of Rome, in order to fund their oppressors. They were, they were the Israeli who was extorting money from the Israeli in the name of the Gentile power that dominated, dominated the nation, and they were doing it with legal impunity and in, 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 in such cutthroat evil that if the families couldn't pay their taxes... They were levied fines on top of the taxes and then fines on top of the fines and then fines on top of those fines until finally the entire family, father, mother, children, everyone would be sold into slavery and the price that was paid to purchase them as slaves would go to pay their taxes. When Jews sell Jews into slavery to the Romans in order to pay taxes to Rome so that The tax agents can line their pockets. Can you imagine the boiling, bubbling, seething, lethal hatred the Jews had for these people, the tax collectors? The tax collector was hated and despised, and yet they were also feared because there was no law that could touch them. Rome said, you got me the money. I don't care about anything else. Such was Matthew. Matthew was not a good man. M- not at all. You know, you know s- some of the religious people who were uh, just as materialistic as the tax collectors, they were, they were jealous of them because they had what they wanted, and yet those tax collectors had the, had the ruthless, ruthlessness to act out their greed. Now, now listen to this. This is a kind of a subtle teaching. Uh, few things are as dangerous... Uh, as a a religious man who lacks the nerve to act out the sins of his heart. Are you listening? There is no evil in this world to compare to the hatred and bitterness and jealousy and envy of a man who has no love for God, no genuine heart holiness. He, He would love to be just as adulterous, just as wicked, just as deceitful, just as materialistic, have everything that the filthy, rotten, lying sinners have, but he doesn't because he's afraid of public censure. He's afraid of losing his reputation and maybe even afraid of God. So he, he, he is bound by his religious code and and he won't do those things, but he envies people who A have the nerve to do them and B, get the end that their means will allow them to have, the things that they wish that they could get themselves. Well, this, this that man is just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than, ta- than the tax collector who actually abandons his soul and his sanity and acts out his greed and his lust. You know, I mean, th- this is this is really important. Why is that man more dangerous? Well, it's because that man is a religious materialist. And because of his hidden motives and his hidden materialistic lust, he can lead other people down the road to destruction in the name of God. The other man, you know, he's an upfront materialist and he wants his materialism on his, he wears it on his sleeve. And he doesn't mind telling you. he say, I'm a tax collector. I'm going to steal from you. I'm going to hold my, this, the, the, this gun to your head and steal from you. Let me ask you, which, which man is actually easier to convert? Which one's actually easier to reach with the gospel? Which man is easier to convict? Which man is easier to touch for God? Which, which man will, will, will be the first to come into the kingdom? You know, Jesus over and over and over again said to the Pharisees, he said, the harlot and the tax collector will go into the kingdom before you. Because at least they've acted out the fantasies of the materialism and are acting outright rebellion against God. I mean, it's out, it's public. They're, they're not fooling themselves. However, the guy over here, the religious materialistic materialist, he's acting in his religion and he's lying to himself about what is actually his materialism. And here's the thing, those two men will hate each other. No one will hate the religious Pharisee like the out-and-out sinner. And no one will hate the out-and-out sinner like the religious Pharisee. However, Jesus stands between them. He sees the sin and the tragedy and the weakness and the fear and the loneliness of the harlots and tax collectors and he extends the arm of grace to them. He sees the lying and deception and satanic evil of the Pharisee and he extends to him both the hand of grace and, and the whip to drive them out of the Father's house. It's an amazing contrast, isn't it? It's, it's a shocking paradox to see these men acting against each other like this when really they're very much the same. Now, let's talk about the call of Matthew. This is the part I've been waiting, I've been dying to get to. Now, now what, what was it in the call of Matthew? that is so surprising. Jesus leans over the tax desk of Matthew one day, here's this evil man, flinty-eyed, cold-blooded, ruthless, materialistic, no fear of God, no fear of man, acting as a collaborator for the Roman Empire. He's counting out his money, demanding his pound of flesh and Jesus leans over his desk one day, and, and he says this glorious sermon, follow me. And, and, and isn't that great? And Matthew is totally, instantly, thoroughly transformed. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, just listen, just once in my life, I'd like to stand up in front of a, of a congregation somewhere and just say, Follow Jesus and then go sit down and see everybody in the room get saved and sanctified instantly just like that. Wouldn't that that be exciting? Do you know in in what kind of crowd that is most likely to happen? In in a jailhouse. However, you will not get much of a response in a church because they will cross their arms across their chest and say, yeah, well, we are. However, the fellow in the penitentiary says, well, I need to follow something. What I have been following isn't doing much for me right now. Maybe Jesus is the answer to my need. But but why did Matthew in his heart of hearts, in his spiritual self, why did he leap up at the simple words, follow me? I mean, perhaps there had been some previous personal contact where he had seen the goodness and the sweetness of the character of Jesus, It's almost certain that he was aware of the fame and he had observed the power of Jesus. After all, I mean, they were there together in this small town of Capernaum. It's a very small fishing village. So he had probably seen some things. But this dramatic confrontation was more than that. It was a response of faith in the context of both Jesus' life and Matthew's life. I want you to understand what was happening. See the context of what's taking place. Jesus had just come from healing the paralytic. You can read that uh, later on. But, but, but listen to this. How many of you remember the account from the book of Luke, excuse me, where Jesus goes into this crowded room and he's teaching and the crowd is in there really tight. And so this, these, these four men come and they lower the paralytic man through the roof. That's what had just happened. Now Matthew doesn't give us any of those details. The, the account of the miracle is there, but he, he doesn't give any, any of those details. He just says that there was a lot of people and Jesus healed a paralytic. But we know from the timeline of everything, we know that that's what took place. And in Luke, it tells us that Jesus went into this place. It was packed and they couldn't get through the crowd. And four men lowered the paralytic down through the roof on a stretcher and Jesus healed him. Now, now I ask you, I'm going to make sure everybody awake, right? I want to ask you a question. Why would Luke have all those details and Matthew had none? Why didn't Matthew have any of the details about what, what went on inside that house? Anybody have an idea? bingo he was not there because that happened right before jesus came to him And so that's really simple. He wasn't in there. Nearly every Jew in the city is crowded into this little room to watch Jesus work a miracle. And Matthew is sitting down at his tax office counting his money. He wasn't there. The nice religious people in town wouldn't want him in that room. They wouldn't let him in that place. He wasn't in there. He's sitting down the street counting his money. When all of a sudden everybody just comes boiling out of that place. And remember, it's a small town. This is probably very close to him, just down the street. And, and, they, and they come boiling out of that house, and, and they're all yelling, He's healed! He's healed! He's healed! And this guy comes running out, and he says, I can walk! I can walk! I can walk! And as he comes past Matthew's desk, Matthew kind of recognizes him. He says, well, well, aren't you? Who are you? And the man says, don't you recognize me? I'm the the guy who was crippled. And Matthew says, well, what happened? And the man says, that man just healed me. And that's the very last thing that happened right before Jesus meets Matthew. Jesus walks straight from that crowded house, right down the street. Matthew is sitting there holding his gold coins in his hand. And he's probably thinking about his empty, hopeless, cold-blooded, stupid, cold-eyed, cynical life. And he's watching this man who's been healed. And, he's, and this man is dancing in the streets with joy unspeakable. And he's filled with glory. And he's looking at his life and his vitality and his health and his blessing. And he's saying to himself, I have nothing here but gold. He said, I have everything, but I have nothing. He's thinking all of this. And Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer. This is the wonderful, exciting thing about preaching. Every Sunday and Every Wednesday when I, when I do this, I, I, the thought can, I can think to myself, somebody has left his house and has started here. And he's thinking to himself, I need more than I have. I need to hear from God. I need a blessing. I need something different. And he's getting closer to the moment of meeting. And so is Jesus. Here comes Jesus. They're they're getting closer and closer together. This guy is holding on to something with his gold, but now it's not the same thing for everybody. Some people are, are in bondage to alcohol. Someone else is feeling depressed. Another guy wants hope for his life. Another man needs a financial miracle. Another guy is just dying inside because he lost his wife and his kids because of his own stupidity. But every one of them is saying, there has to be something. There has to be something for my life something more than this. And Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer. Matthew feels the cold, lifeless weight of the gold in the palm of his hands, and he sees the vitality and the power and the joy in Jesus. And then Jesus leans over the desk and says, follow me. The rest of the sermon is being preached by the Holy Spirit inside of Matthew. What Matthew hears is follow me, not that gold. Follow me. The, do you see that man healed? You're, you're sick. Follow me. That gold, that's death. I am life. Do you, do you see that man well? You're a you're broken down, confused, materialistic, lost wretch. That man is happy and full of joy because he's had a touch from me and he's received a word from me. His sins are forgiven, yours are not. He's walking in in the joy of God and you're not. Follow me. If you want to look like that and be like that and dance like that, follow me. That's the sermon that Matthew is hearing. He's hearing that all inside. That's the wonderful thing about preaching and, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I heard Dr. Rutland Tell the, uh, the story of a time when he preached at a church, and this is a true story. After the sermon was over, uh, he preached this message, and this man came up to him after the service and said, Oh, Dr. Rutland, oh, Dr. Rutland, that illustration you used really touched my heart so deeply. And then he went into detail describing this illustration from the sermon. And Dr. Rutland replied, he just said, he said, well, I'm so thrilled, thank God. And then he immediately went to the media office at that church and got a recording of the sermon. And as he drove away from the church, he started listening to that sermon in his car. And he listened to the sermon all the way through because he had no memory of that illustration. He thought to himself, if I use that illustration, and I've had similar experiences in my life. He said, if if I use that illustration, I was either in the spirit or out of my mind. Because I have no memory of it. And he listened to that recording from the beginning to the end. It wasn't there. He never said it. But that man heard it. He heard Dr. Rutland's words, and in his mind, in his spirit, the Holy Spirit summoned forth an application complete with an illustration. Wow! Matthew hears his whole life, his whole past, his whole future, his whole eternity in in the context of his life. Out of brokenness comes wholeness. Out of death comes life. And follow me is simply the vehicle of God's grace to bring forth in his life everything that he's heard spoken to him. He faces his need for, for vision, to follow God, for his need for purpose, something to transcend mere money. This, this was not about something material anymore for him. Suddenly, it was about something spiritual, something transcendent, holy, righteous, full of life and beautiful. There was an evangelist who was in Dalton, Georgia. And he was at a, preaching in a crusade, this was some years ago, and while he was there, he went to... To, to dinner with one of the wealthiest men in the town. After the dinner was over, it was a sumptuous meal served to them by, by paid servants in this beautiful mansion in Dalton, Georgia. And after, after the dinner was over, the, the, the wealthy man told the servants that they could leave and he asked his wife and his children to leave and there were two other guests there in the room and he asked them to wait in the hallway And he sat there at the table with the evangelist in this $1.3 million home and tears are streaming down his face. And he said, sir, I'm the owner of five carpet mills and I'm the president of another one paid an astronomical salary by the German company that bought me out. He said, I am independently wealthy, but my life is totally empty. He said, I have everything and I have nothing. Well, I believe those are the very words that were echoing deep in the dark, lonely soul of Matthew when he hears Jesus say, Follow me. Follow me. Well, what happened in Matthew? Well, we know he rose and followed Jesus, completely transformed. The historical fact, we know physically he became an apostle. We know that physically, the historical fact is that he wrote this great gospel, which, which we've been reading from. However, what happened in Matthew? What what happened in him as a person? Listen to this. Matthew, from being an arrogant, cold-blooded materialist, became a humble man of God. Humble man of the Spirit. Let me me show you why I say that. In Matthew's account of his own call to salvation, which we've just read in the ninth chapter of his own book, he says that the man himself, he says that he rose and followed Jesus. That's all he said, right? We read that. That's all he said. He rose and followed Jesus. In Luke's account, he tells us that Matthew rose, left all, and followed Jesus. Now what's the difference? Well, in Matthew's account, from his own heart, he says, I've left nothing. I've left nothing. I'm free of the things that were killing me. I've left nothing. However, to Luke, it looked as if he had walked away from much. In Matthew's account of his conversion, it says, and and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house. That's all it says, right? In Luke's account, listen to this. It says, and Levi, or Matthew made him a great feast in his house. To Luke, it looked as if he had made a glorious demonstration of this new generosity and love which had flowed over his life. He expended a great deal of money and Matthew made him and Levi made him a great feast in his house. The emphasis on Luke's sentence is on on whom? It's on Matthew or Levi. And Levi made him... A feast in his house. In Matthew's account, he doesn't even tell you whose house it is. He says, And Jesus reclined at table in the house. In the house. See, the Matthew, Matthew said, The minute I looked into his face, the, the minute I heard him say, Follow me, it wasn't my house anymore, it was just the house. I didn't make a great feast for him because wherever he he sits down, that is a great feast. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You see, the subject of every sentence in Luke is about Matthew and his story, but the subject of every sentence in Matthew is Jesus. In Matthew's account, it says, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Listen to that one more time. Many tax collector, uh, tax collectors and sinners came and were, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Look at the way Luke records it. He says there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, meaning Jesus and Matthew. Again, the focus is on is on Jesus and Matthew. The focus of that sentence. Matthew leaves himself out, and this is not false humility. Suddenly, the, the focus and the center of his life is no longer himself. The center of Matthew's life is now Jesus so thoroughly that his humility is, com- is completely and perfectly genuine. He's absolutely captivated with Jesus. Andrew Murray, a great author he wrote and preacher, he wrote about the essence of real humi- humility. Listen to this. He said, the essence of humility Real humility is not that a man would deny the greatness of his works, but that he would admit the greatness of his his works and would take no personal vainglory for it. Andrew Murray said, The most humble man in the world could build the greatest cathedral in Europe and know that it was the greatest cathedral in Europe and take absolutely no personal glory. That's that's Matthew. People said, Oh, you, you left your house. He'd say, well, yeah, yeah, I did. Well, you, you prepared a great feast. You, you, you immediately opened up your hands and became generous where you'd been stingy. You, were, you became giving where you had been grasping. And he said, well, yes, yes, I did. They said, oh, you must be a wonderful man. And Matthew, hearing that, would just chuckle and say, no, no. He leaned over my desk and said, follow me. Well, let me close with this. There's, there's one more thing about Matthew I want to share with you. In the listing of the apostles, in both Luke and Matthew, not, not here in this passage, but later on when Jesus chose the, the 12 that were going to be his inner circle from all of the disciples, all the people who were following him. In that list, Matthew is listed. He's listed in the middle in both lists. He, he's not first. He's not even the first three. He's not last. He's not, not even the, in the last three. And you you say, well, how important is that? Well, it's important because it's the same in both lists. If Luke alone had recorded him in the middle, since since Luke was not an apostle, that would probably mean that Luke was listing them by some level of importance. And we know that Simon Peter, he's always listed first. He's always first because he was significant and important in the story. Judas, Judas Iscariot, no surprise, he's always right at the bottom In between those two, there is some sense of a a level of importance and significance. Not importance to God, but significance and importance to the church and the history and what God was doing. So so he says, here's this guy, Matthew. He's he's not Peter. He's not James. He's he's not John. He's not even Andrew. But but flip side, he's he's not Judas Iscariot either. He's just right in the middle. And that's fine. And that's Luke. However, when when Matthew records it himself, if he had done it with arrogant pride, the list would say Matthew, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and all the rest. He'd list himself first if he was doing it in pride. False humility would, would actually artificially put himself at the last. If Matthew had listed himself first, it would would have been arrogant pride. If he had listed himself last, it would have been false humility. However, he had a sense, uh, a a, a really a sane estimation of right where he fit in. He said, I'm not Peter uh, or even James or John or Andrew. I'm just a converted tax collector. He said, I'm not Judas Iscariot either. I'm not going to betray the Lord who said, follow me. He said, I'm just me. I'm just who I am. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. This then is the cold-eyed materialist, materialist who cheated and extorted and lied and, and, and felt that money was more important than God and people who came to the humility and the brokenness and the love and the gentleness to establish proper relationships with people and things and God who was able to say, I know who I am, I know whom I have believed, and I have left everything and followed him. And here we are 2,000 years later and we still read his book. Let's pray together. Father, Lord we're amazed at what you can do, that you could take someone like Matthew Someone whose priorities were so completely out of whack. He didn't care about people. All he wanted was money. and He didn't care who he hurt to get it. We know that because he was a tax collector. And you took a man like that with priorities that were out of whack and a heart that was dark and a, a heart that was cold and a heart that was uncaring about those around him and you completely changed him. You showed him that the you showed him the emptiness of pursuing all of those material things. And, and he left it all behind and said, it's all that matters now is Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would learn from that. That we would learn, Lord God, in our lives that, that uh, when, we, when, we, when we start getting caught up with the pursuit of things. And it's so easy. God is so easy in our culture. To begin to say, I want this and I want that and I want that. And there's nothing wrong, Lord God, with having those possessions. But God, when those things become more important than serving you. When, when those things become more important than giving to missions. When those things become more important than, than, than bringing our tithe into the storehouse. When those things become more important than taking care of the poor. and When those things become more important than, than helping somebody who's hungry. Then God... I pray you would help us to see that our priorities and and our vision is completely out of of whack, that in that moment, God, you would come to to us and and lean over our desk and say, hey, 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 don't forget, I've called you to follow me. God, I pray that in those moments when it just feels like the the desire for wealth and and the the materialistic pursuits of this world just feel like they're going to overwhelm us, God, I pray that you'd help us Change us, help us to pursue you and not those things. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody hearing this, somebody watching this on the live stream and that your spirit is dealing with them and saying, hey, there's so much more. Jesus, I pray that they would just do what Matthew did, that they would leave that all behind and then they would just rise and follow you and say, you're what matters. Help us, Jesus. Change our hearts. Change our lives. Make us the kind of people who reflect your glory, your goodness, your mercy, your love, and, ref- and, and, and show the world through us how great our God is. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.